0: up on today's show. Seasonal job postings, retail needs workers, but they may have a tough time finding them this time around. A lot of the uh, sentencing reform that came in under Stephen Harper, those laws are now being undone by the courts and the governments. What's going on and what's at stake with the U.S. midterm elections? You know, it's the holiday season approaching, right? And when we get to this time of year, this is typically when retailers start or have already started up gearing up. For the holiday shopping season and that usually includes some hiring extra bodies to handle the anticipated rush um this year could be different though not because the jobs aren't being posted they are question though is will they be able to be filled do we have the workers to do it we know that's an issue so uh let's get some information we're going to chat with brendan bernard indeed senior economist indeed of course is uh, one of the major hiring platforms may probably the major hiring platform brendan thanks so much for your time i appreciate you joining us
1: Thanks for having me, and uh, I'm pro Van Halen.
0: How can you not be, right?
1: <laughs> a bit <laughs> before my time, but still, uh, still pro. It's timeless. It's timeless,
0: Brendan. Um, <laughs> so Indeed released their holiday hiring trends report just yesterday. We've got
1: a lot of help wanted signs out there, don't we? That's right, uh, and this comes after two somewhat uh, strange years, and no, no surprise. But looking at holiday job postings on Indeed, those are jobs with seasonal related terms in in their uh, title, yep. uh, we see that holiday hiring appetite is quite strong this year, um, up 28% from uh, this point last year and up 40% from their pre-pa- from its uh, pre-pandemic level. Wow. So similar to the overall economy, just a lot of employers looking uh, to, to fill uh, roles. Um, and, and in this case, this is this might have been, this is a the seasonal retail space is an area where I think has actually kind of lagged the economic w- economy wide trend in this regard uh, even last year while. We, we did see a rebound from, uh, from 2020. Seasonal hiring wasn't kind of matching the surge uh, we, 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 in job postings we saw in the rest of the economy. This year, though, uh, uh, hire employers are trying to really ramp up uh, hiring. And the question is, um, while some of them are going to be able to, uh, uh, it, it might be challenging for others.
0: Uh, in terms of timing, are these postings showing up about the same time that they typically do? Are they early? Are they late? Or is this what you'd expect?
1: Uh, I think we started a bit earlier in, in September, but right now is really the peak season. So, and and, and that's what, what we uh, usually see in years past. Sometimes uh, it's a little later, it pushes a bit into November, but this is, this is, this is period we're in right now is usually at or uh, maybe roughly at, at, at when the typically typical okay. hiring season is in full swing, and this is really to hit the months uh, of November and December. And typically right after that, especially in the retail space, uh, the, um, seasonal hiring is done. The, a, lot of the, a lot of the jobs uh, end after the hiring season. And so it's crunch time. And so for employers who are struggling to fill roles, uh, they need to stand out because uh, it's now or never. Um,
0: just to be clear, like, most of these jobs are retail, right? There's still, I mean, is that where you see
1: most of this seasonal hiring is in the retail mm-hmm. space? That's right. Uh, so looking at the most common job titles, uh, seasonal sales associate, customer service reps, uh, sales consultants, generally cashiers, generally, uh, in- involved in the retail space. There are some, uh, uh, other, uh, um, areas of hiring too, though. Uh, we see in some parts of tourism, you know, ski, ski resorts sure, are yeah. definitely, uh, uh Filled up uh, during the holiday season. And you can't forget, uh, you know, the quintessential holiday job, uh, the mall Santa, awesome. which, uh, uh, which definitely uh, shows up. And, uh, and this year with uh, more foot traffic uh, in, in retail stores and malls, um, uh, the, I, I think demand there is probably going to be uh, s- solid as well.
0: Um, what about the talent pool? Like you said, that's the other side of this equation, and we know there's some issues there, right, in terms of the jobs that are posted. How many people are looking for jobs?
1: Yeah, so so, so this is one area where actually um, job seeker interest in seasonal roles is, has actually rebounded a bit okay. from pr- prior years. So 2020 2021 very little enthusiasm uh for um for, for uh, seasonal roles. Just the number of job the share of job searches on our website um including seasonal terms was definitely down versus uh pre-pandemic. This year uh, they have rebounded. They're now running um pretty close to um as a share of activity of 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 what prevailed uh in 2019 so does suggest um some job seekers are are, uh, looking back um uh into these seasonal roles after two um weak years just so like if we compare levels uh if, if even if seasonal interest is sort of back to 2019 uh Overall job post seasonal job postings are up 40%. So it, when it comes to sort of the tug of war between demand and supply, demand is just stronger. And, uh, and, and so that suggests while overall, I, I think hiring is likely to pick up from what it, from two subdued years over the, um, uh, recently, uh, I think, for individual employers trying to fill roles, it's still going to be a challenge.
0: Is it more of a? I mean, does it sort of parallel what you're seeing in other sectors? We know this is happening right across the, you know, the, the economy. All industries are having a trouble uh, filling all their vacancies. Is this more so
1: or less, or is it different from what everybody else is facing? Do you think? I, I think in general it's fairly similar, but I, I will say two caveats. One, so so overall, yes. Quite similar in general. Canada's got quite a tight labor market yeah, yeah. right now. Um, ec- uh, economic uncertainty over for next year, uh, n- notwithstanding, unemployment rates really low, and there are lots of job openings. So I, I would sort of I, I think the answer is though a little bit complicated about seasonal hiring. I think in some ways the crunch is greater just because seasonal hiring is quite time constrained, and these roles are really for. Uh, November, December, and like, and unlike other areas of the economy, if, if a, a job posting might stay open a bit longer, that's not necessarily the end of the world because it's going to be a longer term hire. But in seasonal hiring, the timelines are really compressed. Um, And and so in that sense, um, uh, the the crunch from a tighter labor market uh, is greater in seasonal hiring um, than others. The flip side is, though, I do think that um, were it not for the growth in e-commerce we've seen over the past uh, few years, including uh, during the pandemic, seasonal hiring probably would be even stronger than it is now. So that's sort of like an offsetting factor where um, it it is the the case that – um uh there there are there is some shopping that used to be done in stores that's now uh done online but um without that uh i think the the need the demand for uh seasonal workers would be even greater so maybe that's offsetting some of the overall increase but at the end of the day when it comes to like filling jobs today like just those those, these postings are way up um and and, uh and, and so uh, while why I think hiring, you know, for overall um, uh, is, is going to bounce back this year for individual employers. Um, the need to stand out uh, is going to yeah. be pretty imperative. Yeah, and we've talked about that a bunch too. Brendan,
0: great insight, great information. Thank you, sir. <music> Lots of talk about this and a number of cases that have people very concerned. I told you about the one in Edmonton recently where a guy had been in prison four times. Okay um sexual offender released from prison one of those ones where police say you know what the risk is high enough we're going to issue a public warning that uh this guy is likely to reoffend and he did within a week back in jail again fifth time um and These kinds of cases, they're, they're not done in isolation. There's a few of them. As you know, they come up quite regularly. In fact, the Justice Minister in Alberta is calling on Ottawa to, um, get involved and overrule a Supreme Court decision that came down on Friday that said, you can't put somebody on a national sex offender registry after two convictions. It's too broad. It's too far reaching. You can't do that. It's not fair. Um, and, uh, Tyler Shandro, the Justice Minister in Alberta is saying, no, this, you know, this is going to make things less safe. For Canadians. We need to do something. We need to intervene. Um, That's the tip of the iceberg, as I say. There are dozens, dozens, literally, of court rulings regarding sentencing changes, all of them that came about under Stephen Harper's government that have now been undone in some way. And it's not just court rulings, governments taking action too. So let's get into this and find out exactly what's going on and you know, what kind of laws are being changed and why. We're going to chat with Lisa Kerr, a professor of criminal law at Queen's University. Uh, Lisa, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time.
2: Sure thing. Happy to be here.
0: So this this list of court rulings that we're talking about that have overturned some of these sentencing uh, recommendations and some laws in some cases, what specifically has been challenged and upended in the courts?
2: Yeah, so I think what's really important is just to emphasize that What the court has been dealing with in this most recent case having to do with the sex offender registry and in a number of the other decisions you're referring to are laws that make it mandatory that a particular sentence or ancillary order like placement on the sex offender registry that make it mandatory that those be applied. So it's not correct to say that judges cannot someone on the sex offender registry in the wake of this decision. They absolutely can't. Yep. Um, they just don't they, have the to. Registry, it's, they just don't have to. The registry is a legitimate um, way of assisting police in investigating um, sexual offenses. It's It has a legitimate role to play. The problem was that this law that was passed in 2011 forced judges to put every single person on the sex offender registry, and in some cases for life, um, no matter um, how uh, what the actual features of the offense were or how old they were when it happened. Um, and so you could you wind up with a situation where you know a nineteen year old um, you know commits an offense in a you know no doubt very misguided way the way young people occasionally do um, and and he's on the sex offender registry for life. And so what the court said is, um, is that the law was overbroad mm-hmm. and that it it wasn't actually achieving its purpose of trying to assist police in preventing um those who are at high risk of recidivism and investigating their cases and so on. So it was just it was just the law overshot the mark. It absolutely does not mean that judges can't in appropriate cases um place someone on the sex offender registry. Gotcha.
0: And that's one yeah. ruling of many, right? There's right. there's been a couple dozen rulings around these sentencing requirements
2: it's true it's really quite an amazing sort of wake of litigation that followed um decades of sentencing the decade of sentencing reform that the Harper government engaged in they passed a lot of laws from 2005 to 2015 and we've seen a lot of those laws reach the supreme court level so just to give a quick list we've seen the we've seen mandatory sentences for drug crime get struck down. Mm -hmm. We've seen mandatory fines that have to be imposed no matter the income of the offender. Um, We've seen that get struck down. Um, And we've also seen mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole get struck down. And with each of these, it's kind of the same story. It doesn't mean that a judge cannot impose a lengthy sentence for drug crime. It doesn't mean a judge cannot impose a fine, particularly where you know it looks like an offender has some money and you want to make sure you get at that that um, that income ability they have. Um, it doesn't mean the parole board is going to let everybody out who's committed serious crimes. Um, what these cases have said is that our system requires the experts in our systems, the prosecutor, the prison officials, the judges, the parole board, you have to let these people do their job and decide cases based on the uh, the facts that are in front of them um, it doesn't mean any particular outcome is mandated uh, what it means is there has to be discretion in, in, in these different scenarios
0: I think you're right and I think in a perfect world that makes absolute sense but and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot and if uh, but to me it seems no, because <laughs> because cuz these laws were brought in they're, they're wildly popular some of the ones that we're talking about that have been overturned um they were unanimous i mean all parties supported them so it seems to me like a lot of canadians think okay you're right we would like to be able to rely on the system to get it right but they don't so many times that we're going to say this is what you must do um is it sort of, and then we get into an area of overreach do you think that's a fair assessment
2: well, I, I, I think you're right to say these laws are popular. Um, and I think, um, it, you know, the tough on crime policies are often pretty easy to sell to people, right? I yeah, mean, we're, yeah. none of us want to be the victim of crime. Um, we all want to protect our families and live in safe communities. And so when a politician says, hey, I'm going to do something that sounds like it's going to make you safer, Of course, that sounds appealing to most of us. Right. We want to. I I want a safe system just as as much as my neighbor does. Um, The problem is that there's often rhetoric around these bills that just doesn't match reality. And I'll give you an example. So the recent Bisonette case, this was all about um, uh, whether it was constitutional to deny offenders any opportunity at parole. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you if you have multiple murder victims, then you don't ever get to go in right. front of yep. the parole board. Yep. And um, so that was a completely symbolic and unnecessary law. The parole board right, is very well positioned to deny release to serious offenders. And they do it each and every day in this country. Right. But what's important Uh, in our system, though, is that when people are in prison, that they're behaving themselves in prison and that they're doing programs and they're not hurting prison guards and other inmates. And so that law had a very dysfunctional effect. It took away any incentive that a prisoner would have to behave themselves in custody. That's really all it did. Um, And and, and I kind of have very little doubt that the parole board is going to continue to deny release to people who have murdered multiple victims. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it was a dysfunctional law for our prison system. And so, yeah, it's easy to sell it to people, but it's a lot more difficult when you actually have to work inside of a prison and try to make this system work. Um so so yeah the laws are popular but that doesn't mean they're good laws.
0: Exactly and there's other considerations at play. Now there's more, right? I right. mean we're not, we're not at the end of this. There are yeah. more legal challenges and there are more governments looking to um upend some of these sentencing reforms and all the rest of it. I mean this isn't finished, is it?
2: Well it's not and we're really talking here about constitutional law and yeah. so um governments aren't free to just say, well, I don't, I don't care much about what's in the the Constitution. I'm just going to pursue this policy anyway. That's where the courts do have a legitimate role to play. And you're right. There's more cases coming. There's one coming on Friday that has to do um, a case called Sharma, where the court may strike down um, limits on the ability to order a conditional sentence. I mean, that's another example of just a law that's been so dysfunctional. Um, so. So for people that have committed very low level offenses where they could be sent to provincial jail, but where a judge just says it makes no sense to send this person to provincial jail, I want to give them house arrest. I want to keep them working. I want to keep them taking care of their kids i want to keep them paying their child support so i'm going to keep them in the community there's no reason to send them to jail Mm -hmm. and i can manage their risk in a better long-term way by keeping them under strict house arrest and conditions. and 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 we got these provisions that that made it impossible for judges to do that and so they have to send people to provincial jail now if you care about public safety um, taking someone who's already living a precarious life and taking them away from their job, away from their housing and away from their family for six months and then spitting them out again. That is terrible for public safety. Sure. Um, so it's much better for judges to be able to, you know, judges, they're, they're not. They're, it, 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 these are fairly conservative and serious people and they want to do justice in the cases that are in front of them. Um, and they understand, right, that public safety is absolutely crucial, but they don't think that public safety is always served by by a short jail sentence in particular. So that issue is, is likely, it will be adjudicated on Friday. The case is going to come down, so we may see another law invalidated tomorrow.
0: Exactly, yeah, and, and could be more after that, too. So, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for uh, walking us through that. I appreciate your time today. To follow politics, we'll have a busy day next Tuesday. Pop the popcorn. We have the by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat. Uh, Premier Daniel Smith trying to win a seat in the legislature. That goes next Tuesday night. South of the border, we have the latest chapter in, uh, I don't know, the dystopian novel that is the United States these days. It'll be written during the midterm elections taking place on November the 8th. lot at stake here. Um, some say democracy itself in the United States is at stake here, including the President of the United States, Joe Biden. He gave a speech yesterday talking about just how important next week's midterms are. We can't ignore the impact this is having on our country. It's damaging, it's corrosive, and it's destructive. And I want to be very clear. This is not about me. It's about all of us. It's about what makes America, America. He's talking about the threats to legitimacy of the elections and refusing to accept the outcomes of elections. I mean, the list goes on. A lot of people say democracy itself hanging in the balance. Maybe not on Tuesday, but it's another step down that road. We're going to chat now with Matt Liebel. Matt is a department chair and a professor of political science at Western University. Matt, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. Let's define what midterms are. I think for a lot of people who don't follow politics closely, it can be a little bit confusing. We're talking about these elections held, always held, two years after the presidential election. It's not for the president. This is um, a secondary slate. I mean, this is, they, they have
3: cycles in the U.S., right? Right. So every member of the House of Representatives is up for reelection every two years. Every member of the Senate is up for re-election every six years. And so each every two years, you got all the members of the House and one third of the Senate has elections. And half the time it's coincidental with a presidential election. And like this year, there is no presidential election and we call them the midterms.
0: So President Biden will be President Biden for two more years. But what is at stake then? We've got the House and the Senate that are sort of up in the air, right? Right. So.
3: The House right now is, has a Democratic majority, but it's very, very thin, yeah. and that looks likely to flip to the Republicans. The Senate is 50-50, and ties are broken by the Vice President Kamala Harris, and that also is sort of teetering towards the Republicans.
0: Okay, so um, when Joe Biden talks about what could happen if it does tip into the hands of the Republicans in both the House and the Senate, what's at stake? What would happen? What's on the Republican agenda should they win the House and the Senate?
3: Okay, so imagining that they win both of those, uh, the first thing would be the end of the uh, January 6th, uh, committee meetings and the end of, of, uh, that sort of uh, bipartisan effort to dig deeper into what happened and Donald Trump's responsibility. Uh, there would be negotiations over who was the, uh, Speaker of the House and probably the most right-wing, uh, members in the, in the Republican caucus, uh, would push for, you know, they'd have demands they'd want good committee um memberships they'd want to have uh, oversight roles there would probably be pretty quickly um talk of impeachment of joe biden the house would try and pass articles of impeachment over who knows what uh, hunter biden's laptop or some some issue um, but that that is certain to happen, and then if this, if Republicans also hold the Senate, then those impeachment articles uh, they would probably get passed, and then there would be an impeachment trial in the Senate, which would never result in in uh, President Biden being impeached because that required that would require some Democrats to to agree with it. But it would make much of the next two years just about pure partisan warfare. Um, nothing would get passed. Right, have to divide the government that way.
0: Yeah, I mean we we have gridlock, which, you know, if observers think back to the time with um, Obama, a lot of his agenda just got stalled because uh, of those three branches. So it would just turn into more of, like you say, partisan warfare. And I think a lot of people are really, really concerned that the partisan warfare in the United States, and this is what Biden was talking about, and he's not alone. A lot of people are talking about on the ballot in these midterms is democracy. What do they mean by that?
3: Well, there's many many republicans um especially in uh, in congress um who are espousing non-democratic ideas right that that uh if they can either win or the election can be stolen from them they deny the results of the 2020 election um carrie lake who's running f- uh, for governor in arizona says that you know she, she's unlikely to accept a loss she would see that as as fraud um the peaceful transfer of power that is a key part of democracies wasn't there in 2020 and it looks unlikely to be there in 2024 you you have really one party is undermining faith in democratic institutions and faith in in you know truth and a shared reality and um it's it's just dangerous we've seen all these norms broken Mm -hmm. you know democracy is not just a constitution it's it's people who are upholding the way that you know the way that parties treat each other that treating treating the opponent as the opponent and not you know the enemy
0: Um, in terms of what happens going forward it really sets the stage for the next presidential election as well in 2024 right it sort of opens some doors or closes some doors
3: Right, so now when you think about, you know, what would it take for Joe Biden to win the electoral votes in a particular state, right? So the president has to win 270 electoral votes, and January 6th, 2021 was when those were counted, and we had, you know, all that uh, the rioting. So what will it take for Joe Biden to win a state in 2024? Well... The state has to vote for him, but then the secretary of state of that state and the governor of that state and the legislator of that state all have to approve that he actually won. And right. then you need the House and the Senate to approve that, what the state decided. And for all of those things to happen in some states, uh, with some states, is getting really questionable. Arizona and Wisconsin, they may not approve of, of what the voters do. They may try and put their own uh, set of electors in. And then you just have this you know getting to getting to an outcome that both sides agreed to uh, and, and agreed that was fair just um is looking like a remote possibility now
0: yeah it is it is hard to believe sometimes in it and it's downright scary matt thank you for your time i appreciate you being here today thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast if you like what you hear don't forget to rate and review us